Welcome to the Jill on Money Coronavirus Market Update. Uh, we are recording this early, actually. It's Tuesday morning, 10.34 a.m. Eastern Time. And uh, I don't know, we decided to go early today because we've got a fantastic interview for you. We have Professor Scott Galloway here for you guys. This is fantastic because I was able to interview him last week for a piece that ran on CBS Sunday morning. We can't ever put as much in a television segment as we can on a podcast. So what I think is great are all the things that end up on the cutting room floor. And this is a great example of that. Now, Scott is a professor of marketing at Uh, New York University's Stern School of Business. He is an author of The Four and Algebra of Happiness. We actually had him on the pod right after he wrote The Four, and then he got very famous and never came back. But we got him now. We're talking about, essentially, the, the changing retail landscape. The death of retail, if you will, and certainly right after J. Crew filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, there will be others. We know that. And we're also going to talk a little bit about higher education, certainly since everyone's been forced to take those college classes at the end of the semester online. We're starting to realize that maybe the college that you thought was worth 10, 30, 50, 70 grand a year, maybe not exactly worth that. So I'd love to hear from you after you listen to this. Tell us what you think. Send us an email, askjill at jillonmoney.com. Ask Jill at jillonmoney.com. And of course, send us your questions as well. Tomorrow, we'll get back to answering all those questions. Rest of the week is going to be a lot about the labor market. We're going to have weekly claims on Thursday, the monthly jobs report on Friday. So it's going to be a lot. So enjoy this interview with Scott Galloway. So Scott, uh, we entered 2020 with a retail industry that was already hobbled. Can you describe what the outlook was prior to the pandemic? So the U.S. was overstored. We have exponentially more square feet per capita than almost any market in the world. However, a lot of this had been kept on life support or artificially inflated, if you will, by low interest rates, uh, record high levels of consumer sentiment and a stock market, a Dow that was hitting 30,000. But if you were if you were to look for a market that in retrospect looked ripe for disruption, it was retail in 2020. And in last year, 2019, which was you know a pretty decent year for growth, wasn't awesome. We had 9,300 store closures. We had 23 retail bankruptcies. Were you expecting more of the same or an acceleration coming into 2020? Uh, well, hindsight's 2020. I don't, I, we're probably going to see 15 to 25,000 stores, but there was just no getting around it. America was overstored. Uh, so it's we knew there was going to be additional pain. We didn't know there was going to be this type of devastation, though. Where retail could be kind of ground zero for the consumer apocalypse, if you will, that's been brought on. What do you think is going to happen to sort of the big major, say, department store chains? We we interviewed somebody who's a department store historian, and she kind of said, "Well, this business has been dead for 30, 40 years. I don't know what you were expecting. What are you expecting coming out of this?" Yeah, so COVID nineteen is really more of an accelerant than it is a change agent, and that is, department stores are likely the Walking Dead. They were in the seventh inning of their life. Now they are officially in the bottom of the ninth, if you will. Especially retail apparel, vastly overstored. They're having a difficult time. 
But this is effectively doing, if you will, biologically, uh, a virus is meant to or usually goes through and calls the herd. And we're having the same thing economically. We're having a culling of the herd. And that is strong retailers are going to probably emerge from this stronger. And that is post the culling of the herd, there's more foliage for a fewer number of elephants. So you're going to see some retailers emerge from this stronger, but there's going to be vastly fewer of them. It's interesting because we uh, interviewed the, the department store historian and what she had told us was that department stores were really about experience. You could bring your, your family in there, drop your kids off and go take a class about how to put on makeup. And I'm wondering whether experiential marketing is going to also be a way to bring people back in, especially after the pandemic, because you're not going to get that when you pick it up from the curb. Yeah, and there will be. You're going to want people no longer go to stores for products. They go for people. They want expertise. They want to go into a Sephora and have a cast member who is inspired by and knowledgeable of beauty products. Uh, take off your glasses and, and help you figure out how to get rid of bags under your eyes. And it ends up being a nice experience with a high EQ person. You want to go to the restaurant at the top of a restoration hardware and feel as if you're having a wonderful meal in Sonoma and seeing envisioning what your your outdoor or your living room might look like. So experience again, experiential retail is going to be the key here. There'll be less square footage. It'll still be very expensive. It lends itself towards high end, more urban centered malls. Uh, the death of the store has been greatly exaggerated, but the, probably the death of department stores you know, the Grim Reaper is probably banging on the door and that, that knock is getting louder and louder. When you think about the vastly fewer, obviously Amazon comes to mind or a Walmart or a Target. Are there any large name brands that you think will emerge stronger besides those big three? So the obvious ones are the essentials that if you think about the stimulus, you could argue it's the Amazon and Walmart Shareholder Act, because not only did we put a lot of stimulus in the hands of consumers who spend a disproportionate amount of their consumer dollars at an Amazon or a Walmart and need those basic essentials, they also had an opportunity to see 98% of their competitors closed. So this is sort of a dream scenario for Walmart and Amazon shareholders who have touched new highs or their equities touch new highs. There will be companies that will come back stronger than ever. If you think of a restoration hardware or a Sephora, these are outstanding companies that were thriving before that offer an experience, that offer an opportunity to escape, offer an opportunity to bring your home to life. As people spend more time at home, as people spend more time when they do go outside wanting to feel good about themselves, you know, these were outstanding retailers going into the crisis, and they're probably going to come out stronger as a lot of their weaker competitors that didn't have the same bulletproof balance sheets don't reemerge. So there will be specialty retailers here that will come back stronger. Do you sense that there are changes that will be long lasting among consumers coming out of this when it comes to retail? Will we be buying more and more online, which we were doing anyway, but would we maybe have a different idea around thrift or uh, less consumption. So yeah, the easy ones are we're going to uh, e-commerce is going to accelerate the supply chain delivery to your home is only going to increase in terms of sheer dollar volume. This is accelerating uh, a change, if you will, from terrestrial or stores to digital of what is the largest consumer category in the world. And that is U.S. grocery, which is about a seven hundred and fifty billion dollar market. And if it goes from two percent to 10% of sales online, you're talking about 70 or $80 billion of commerce shifting from stores to online. In terms of consumer, 
Throughout economic history, actually, pandemics tend to have a more scarring effect on consumer sentiment than even wars or economic crises. There's no unifying victory or sense of optimism coming out of them, usually just a lot of pain and kind of remnant suffering. So you could argue that consumer sentiment will likely take a significant step down that could severely impact our approach to discretionary income, our approach to saving more and consuming less. So sure, we could see an absolute altering in consumer confidence coming out of this pandemic. You've said that Amazon is going to be a winner in the the post-pandemic economy. What's the downside of that? So I believe Amazon's gonna be our first $2 trillion company, not only on its acceleration as one of the few retailers that has been able to deliver essentials, their outstanding service, their outstanding um, execution, but now that they appear to be moving into what is probably the most disruptable industry left in the United States, and that is US healthcare, I believe this will absolutely disrupt the US healthcare industry. And by 2025, Amazon will be the most valuable healthcare company in the world. The question we face, Joe, is are we comfortable with a small number of companies having so much influence that they become too big to fail? Even now, imagine if all of a sudden Amazon or Walmart were taken offline. Imagine the potential panic we could have if our food supply chain was interrupted, and it would be if just two retailers went down. Are we comfortable with one company being so important and that company having 100 lobbyists in Washington, that company being able to look at industries and begin disrupting it before they even compete in it as the stock market value of any industry they threaten to go into begins to decline. Are we comfortable with just a small number of companies having this outsized uh, ratio of influence? Or do we stick to our proud script of antitrust when, when any one industry or company becomes too powerful, we go in and break them up? And it's so interesting because obviously antitrust has been um, framed as, well, if it's okay for the consumer, if prices are cheaper, then we should be satisfied with that. What's the response? So there's a good argument there. Antitrust is based on if it's good for the consumer, leave the company alone. The question is, do we know what we don't know or do we know what we're missing? And that is France, for example, is able to shut down Amazon because it has much greater diversity of retail. Are we comfortable being in an environment where there's very little innovation around retail because it's impossible to start an e-commerce company, it's impossible to start a social media platform, it's impossible to start a computer hardware manufacturer because there are a few giants that perform infanticide on small companies trying to get oxygen or prematurely euthanize bigger companies which tend to be better taxpayers and better employers. Are we comfortable with a small number of players and an ecosystem that just isn't that diverse? And, you know, you, you point to the idea around the workers. How do you rate some of these emerging firms and how they treat their workers? I mean, Amazon has been notoriously tough on the folks that work for them. And then the economy got better. They had to pay them a little bit more. Do you see a change in the labor force for these retailers as well? You know, right now they're using the term, the media is throwing out the term essential workers a lot. And what I would argue is that if you call someone essential, that's Latin for we have not paid them a living wage over the last 20 years. Hmm. And that is whereas we honor, we step outside our windows at 8 p.m. every night and we applaud our healthcare workers, which is wonderful and warranted. We don't step outside our windows to honor uh, the essential workers, quote unquote, the people putting groceries in our car, the people picking us up and taking us from point A to point B, because I would argue it reflects the continued war on the poor. And that is we don't have a lot of respect for these people and feel that even if they're not able to make a living wage, 
that because we like to believe, believe we live in a meritocracy and everyone has the chance to go to work for Google, the reality is that's not true. And as a result, we, the downside of believing we live in a meritocracy is there's a certain level of resentment or acceptance of a substandard life for people who haven't been able to figure it out and make less than a living wage, even if they work full time. So I hope there's a change, but there's just no getting around it. The middle class has not had a wage increase. And a lot of what we talk about in terms of essential workers is just that. It's really just nomenclature. Uh, we call them essential, but we treat them like chumps. So if you look back, you know, four some years ago, would you have ever imagined that these four would be as dominant and big as they have become? So, yeah, it, when I started researching these companies, it started out as a love letter. I love these companies. I own their shares. Amazon is the largest recruiter of students out of my class. By the end of the book, after really getting to know these firms and seeing their power, it became a cautionary tale. And without antitrust, without having the backbone and the will to break up companies when they become too powerful and they overrun government, we can lead to very dark moments in our history where government, when it's no longer a countervailing force to private power, but a co-conspirator, that is a key step to tyranny. And we appear to be on that march. So yeah, I, I, I think I'd like to think that I was one of the people that did see it, but the world isn't what the world is. The world is what we make of it. And it's absolutely not too late to break these companies up and oxygenate the ecosystem. Even from a capitalist standpoint, I believe if we broke up these companies, the shareholders would benefit, that as a whole, these companies are greater separate than they are as a whole. If you were looking at the retail landscape and you had a gazillion dollars to invest, your the private equity ad finitum, right? Yep. Where are those dollars going for you, Scott Galloway? Sure. So I think there are three outstanding opportunities on a risk adjusted for above market returns. Now, all three of them in order are Amazon, Amazon, and Amazon. <laughs> and the bottom line is, I only have one investment criteria, Jill, and that is I invest in unregulated monopolies. And Amazon right now is an unregulated monopoly. And there will be tropes. You could see restoration hardware double. You could see LVMH stock double. There were always going to be alpha dislocations or opportunities to make a lot of money. On a risk-adjusted basis, it's difficult to match the opportunity and the upside offered by companies that are monopolies, that are unregulated. So the only investment strategy you need is Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. What do you think, you know, you, you said that pandemics can have lasting impacts. We've had so many people talk about the V-shaped recovery. What's your view? You've been an investor, you've been a professor, you do analysis. What's your view of where we stand right now in this process of the pandemic economy? So I think we're all hoping uh, that it's a V-like recovery and we've entered into consensual hallucination with the marketplace. And in fact, we will have a V-shaped recovery. The market really isn't that far down. If you're invested in big tech, you're actually up for the year. The marketplace has gone back to 2017 levels. If in 2009, you and I had said, okay, the market's going to be at 25,000 in 2020, we would think that was great. Uh, I, I would argue we're in for another leg down. I think there's been real damage to the economy and more importantly to our psyches. I think if there is a relapse uh, in the fall, it could our worst fears could be realized and that fear itself could take hold. So I would say it's not going to be a V. At best, it's going to be an L. Uh, the fear scenario or the real scary scenario is that it's a chair, that it's an L with another leg down. It's essentially all dependent upon the apex of the relapse in the fall. 
You predicted before it even happened that uh, Amazon would purchase Whole Foods. What else should Amazon buy right now to round out its portfolio? Well, you could see Amazon acquiring uh, different firms. To be blunt, I don't think Amazon is going to make probably a real iconic purchase because I think they are worried about raising the antennae of antitrust organizations. So we're in the worst of both worlds right now. There's a chill that's been sent across the biggest acquirers, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, because they're worried about antitrust scrutiny. At the same time, these smaller companies can't get the type of funding in those categories that you need to see more innovation. So we either need to break these companies up or let them start acquiring again, because right now there's a lack of M&A activity. But I don't think Amazon, I don't see Amazon making a large scale retail acquisition for fear that they would raise concerns or red flags around antitrust. Do you think that consumers are going to now feel much more comfortable shopping for groceries online now that they've been forced to do so? Is this is this a growth area for the Stop and Shops and the Kroger's of the world? Oh, 100%. We're going to see the largest consumer category in the world is U.S. grocery. And it clocks in at three quarters of a trillion dollars. But we have lagged in terms of e-commerce or the digital ordering of groceries, whereas in the UK or in South Korea, it's double digits. It's two, three percent in the US. So you could see just in this last 90 days that we're going to take somewhere between 70 and 100 billion dollars in US grocery commerce and move it from the store to online. So that in itself will create an entirely new ecosystem of players that support that transition. Scott, are you, you're sort of an interesting combination of an optimist and a pessimist, and I'm wondering if you could give me some of your optimism on the way out. What, what is optimistic as you look at the landscape going forward, whether it's for retail or for the economy uh, or for consumers? I think hopefully this is an opportunity for a new generation of leadership to come up and realize that our superpower as a species is cooperation and that... Uh, viruses don't know any borders, so our cooperation shouldn't know any borders. I think it's an opportunity to repair and restore the most important asset in our lives, and that's our relationships with others. It would, just as we give medals to people for valor and how they behave in times of crisis on the battlefield, I think it's an opportunity for all of us to reinvest in relationships, take stock of what's important, and help others, that this is an opportunity to demonstrate valor in a time of crisis. So a new generation of leaders and an opportunity for all of us to strengthen and catalyze existing and new relationships. You've been very critical, and I remember when I had you on my podcast a few years ago, you really were critical of the cost of education. Looks like some colleges are going to consider going online in the fall. My alma mater, Brown University, the president wrote this big pitch yesterday about opening in the fall. What is your view on uh, higher education at some of these schools that cost 60, 70 grand a year? So we as academics have been preying on the hopes and dreams of the middle class for the last 30 years and raising prices faster than inflation. And it's become a real uh, moral weight on our society. And I believe that COVID-19 is going to set off the disruption that I've been predicting and a lot of people have been predicting for the last 20 years. And that is simply put, students and parents aren't going to pay $68,000 for the students, for their kids to take mediocre Zoom classes. The result, unfortunately, will end up in being a flight to quality. And that is the top 20, maybe the top 50 universities will all have to reduce their costs, but they'll make up for that revenue by using technology to expand their enrollment. So you could see in an environment where in 10 years, MIT isn't welcoming 3,000 freshmen to campus, but 30,000. The result there will be lower prices, 
But what it will also mean is that several hundred universities will not reopen at all. We are mm -hmm. finally we are finally seeing the mother of all chins be disrupted, and that is U.S. higher education, and it couldn't happen at a better time. That will be a benefit of this crisis. Education costs are about to come down, and the cartel of higher education is about to be broken. I mean, and I think that that would be sort of a benefit. It would such be a relief for middle class people and upper middle class people even who feel that weight of having to dive into their retirement accounts to do everything possible to pay those bills and to put themselves in hock. It would be a relief to say you don't have to do that anymore. You can get an education without going broke. We in academia have become drunk on luxury. We're no longer public servants. We constrain freshman admittees. Every year, my dean brags about how difficult it is to get into NYU. And the reality is that's like being the head of a homeless shelter, boasting that we turned away 90% of our applicants. We are a social good, not luxury brands. And when you don't expand your freshman class faster than inflation, like Harvard, and you have a sit on a $37 billion budget, you are no longer public servants. You are luxury goods, and you should be taxed like any other private company. We in academia have lost the script. We're drunk on exclusivity. We're not fulfilling our mission to take unremarkable kids and turn them into remarkable kids. We have absolutely lost the script in higher education. Are you going to lose your job by NYU because you speak like this? The wonderful thing, I think, in general about academia and definitely the wonderful thing about NYU is that they respect the pursuit of truth regardless of who it offends. That's actually good to know. Great interview, right? I don't promise stuff and, and not deliver, all right? Uh, Mark has reminded me that in our outro, where I've been telling you to maintain your social distance, which you should, wash your hands, which you should, wear your mask, which you should, and do something nice for somebody else, lift somebody else up, which you should, I have neglected to say that our music is by friend of the podcast, Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer, the person who makes everything happen in my life. And we are distributed by Cadence 13. So thanks so much for listening. We're here every single day. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you don't know where to do that, it's anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, wherever. All right. Thank you so much. And we will talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.